Greetings, dear listener. I'm your host, Ian McKenzie. And this is a bonus episode that was spurred by my experience in a program a few months ago, uh, led by my good friends, Amir Danji, also from A Gathering of Stories, as well as uh, his compatriots, Sabrina Lakani and Farah Nazarali. Now, this program is called Patterns to Presence, and it really looks at a level of inquiry on one's own relational patterns. And my partner and I uh, took the program again a few months ago, and it uh, was profound in the way that it revealed you know, some of my own patterns in relating, how that's related to childhood um, experiences, as it so often is, and particularly how that might uh, land for other men who might have similar experiences. And so I thought it would be neat to have them both on for this bonus episode where we would discuss the program, my experiences in it, and implications, um, some from a mythic lens on why this is so and uh, the necessity to really focus um, on one's own healing uh, relational patterns to, one, have healthier relationships, but also particularly with uh, parenting, for example, not to pass on unconsciously these patterns and instead be able to shift into a skillfulness of of attuning to presence. Okay, I'd like to introduce you to Zamir Danji. Zamir is a holistic counselor and yoga educator dedicated to individual and group self-actualization. He leads clients in compassionate inquiry, a psychotherapeutic approach developed by trauma and addiction expert, Dr. Gabor Mate. And Sabrina is a behavioral scientist with a gift of drawing out unconscious beliefs and biases from written texts which I can attest uh, she can by reading my journal entries, um, which is part of the program. Uh, where others see complexity, Sabrina sees patterns. All right. Enjoy the conversation with Zamir and Sabrina. Welcome, Zamir and Sabrina, to the show. Thank you. Thanks, Ian. It's so awesome to be here with you. I'm delighted as well to have you both here on the show. And just to give a bit of context, further context to this uh, mini episode, uh, I went through a program uh, a few months ago now, I suppose, uh, called Patterns to Presence, which uh, you two are the main, uh, along with a third, are the main um, offerers of this program, which uh, you can elaborate a little bit more in a moment. But my understanding is it really looks to work on uh, attachment patterns and relationships. Um, and of course that opens up a whole other spectrum of inquiry. And, uh, I went through the program with my partner and it was profound for a number of reasons. And, uh, we'll probably touch on a few in a moment. Um, and I wanted to invite this conversation on the podcast. Uh, one, because I tend to follow a, I don't know, I call them thematic clusters within the podcast. And it feels like right now we're also in a, in a, a sort of relationship, um, cluster within, you know, the episodes. And so it feels like a right moment. And also I wanted to bring this conversation around, uh, attachment, you know, understandings and relationship, uh, particularly, but not only for those who identify as men, because in a lot of ways, uh, like me uh, in the past, um, particularly I had a hard time connecting with the why, like, why is this understanding important? Uh, how does it relate to my relationships? Um, you know, both with other men and with other women and, you know, family dynamics, all these things have their part in both, you know, personal, uh, one's own personal relationship to self and relationship. And then, of course, uh, the macro, how that spills over into the broader cultural 
um, whether it's conflict or trauma, you know, all the things that are showing up now. So it feels like, you know, this is a really beautiful door to enter and I'm delighted to have you both on so we can explore a bit more of this uh, discussion openly. Let's dive in. <laughs> well, I'd love to, if you could fill in now a little bit more about what is the intention of the program and, and sort of what are the, um, you know, main areas which you focus on. There you go. Yeah. I mean, um, so we call it patterns to presence. And what that really means is taking people from generally their insecure attachment patterns, which we develop as children and then bring them into our intimate relationships. But without their presence, we're not able to see them for what they are. And we tend to repeat the patterns over and over again, becoming more and more unhappy in our lives, careers, relationships, just overall health-wise. It affects everything. And um, by bringing presence and clarity and mirroring those patterns back to people, I think is what helps them really take a good look at it and then be able to shift from it and say, this is not what I want in my life. This is not what I want for my children's lives. And, um, and, and witnessing those shifts, you know, through a variety of modalities, the three of us that we bring together is, um, it's really remarkable to watch that happen so quickly. Yeah. Uh, we, we realize that, you know, when there's three of us working together, um, Sabrina is a behavioral scientist, myself in holistic trauma-informed counseling, and then Farah in um, nonviolent communication, emotional intelligence training, that we can get to the heart of the issue much faster than if we were alone, right? And there's a synergy of expertise that really help us to take this holistic approach. And, um, you know, when you, when you find something that works, you want to understand why it works, and then you want to improve it and then make it available to people. Mm -hmm. So we started to say, wow, this is something that's really working and we can use it to help people to really heal, right? And that, you know, healing is a, is a broad word, but, you know, the, the mental and emotional dimensions of suffering seem to just be getting larger and larger and larger in the world today. And um, to keep pace with that, we need to be evolving our understanding of, you know, the human mind, understanding where these mental and emotional patterns that create suffering originate, and how do we address them, right? And, and so in a way that we can have more compassion and our program, you know, helps people to do that. Mm. Could you give a quick, brief overview as well of uh, my understanding of the, you know, maybe the key attachment patterns that, that they've sort of more broadly identified in attachment theory? Um, I understand, right, there's secure, um, uh, avoidant, anxious, and disorganized, if I mm -hmm. got that right. Yeah. And may maybe if you just explain, like, what, what, when people hear that, or when, when somebody says that, like in this conversation, what are they, what are they saying in a sort of brief way? It's, it's really, you know, comes down to how you show up in conflict with your intimate partner. That's the best way to know what your attachment style or pattern is. Um, and sometimes it does vary from partner to partner, but typically it's pretty stable. And so the anxious person is the one that generally brings up the issues you know, to the surface, asks to talk, asks to connect, um, and is very persistent, sometimes, you know, overly persistent. Um, and, and they they really struggle to soothe themselves. The avoidant partner, I mean, kind of like in its name, avoids, you know, the conflict because it's uncomfortable and uh, prefers not to talk about it, prefers to just let it go, get it over it, you know, and... and is bothered by someone that brings it up over and over again. 
And um, typically, they find themselves in relationship with an anxious partner. So you get one of each. And then there's the disorganized, which is also called the fearful avoidant. Um, they don't have a specific one type of strategy. But what we've noticed is that generally, they start off as similar to the anxious, looking for connection, having a lot to talk about, really opening up. And then when there is a point of conflict or disagreement where they feel hurt, they very quickly push the other person away. And, um, and so this is, these are the types of behaviors that we've come to understand as the different, you know, uh, attachment mm. styles. And of course, there's the secure one, which is very, very rare. And I think the holy grail <laughs> <laughs> where we all want to get to. But uh, some of the older research says that up to 50% of the population is secure. And I, I completely disagree. I, I don't think that's the case. Um, you know, just based on my experience of living in the world and, and coaching clients now. So mm. that's really, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up actually, because yeah, I remember reading in a book, uh, I think the maybe the original one, a sort of pop one on, on attachment theory. And they said that about 50% are secure. And I'm like, what? Yeah. Um, and uh, okay. So thank you for that. And I'm curious, or maybe to curious to share my understanding how that shifted as well, that um, in relationship, like I personally don't think I was, or let's say in former relationships, I believe I was more secure. And um, in some sense that maybe this is true or not in terms of your research, but people can change attachment styles based on like life events, you know, different, you know, traumatic events typically. Um, and, and just, yeah, deep challenges that can come up and, and really affect oneself. And for me, I think, or at least I feel based on conversations I've had with a former partner, um, that it was actually my divorce, which spun me into more of an avoidant attachment style. Now I, I, I obviously there's certain conditions that were present for me as a child as well that maybe were less activated with a partner that was a bit more avoidant in in the past, um, and then they really amped you know after that and uh, the the key piece for me though that I maybe love to hear you speak a bit more on is uh, both avoidant and anxious are seeking connection. Mm -hmm. uh, you know this to me was a bit of a you know, revelation in some ways that I felt, because I would say when I'm occupying the avoidant side, it's a bit more like, why does this person keep bothering me? You know, like, what are the, yeah. why do they want to talk about everything? Like, um, but they would often manifest personally as maybe there's nobody that is right for me, or maybe I'm not right for relationship. I must be just broken, you know, and all these thoughts would come up as a way of almost justifying putting distance between me and, and my partner. Um, and yet behind that is actually this deep longing for connection, which you know, strikes a certain chord in me. And so I would just love for you to speak a little bit more about that. Like, how does that dance, which often has a lot of conflict, actually uh, mask perhaps that deeper longing for connection? So I think it's two things. I think it's connection and in safety, right? So mm. for a lot of the anxious, sometimes connection um, it is the safety and, and it doesn't matter, you know, um, how terrible of a relationship they're in. Uh, sometimes they'll amp up the volume for issues and almost become violent to some extent just to be just to feel connected um, because to be isolated is what is the threat to their safety mm. um, oftentimes for the avoidant it's the complete opposite they don't they cannot connect unless they feel safe and and so they need to establish that safety whether it's emotional safety or you know physical safety whatever it is that needs to exist in order for them to open up and, and be ready to connect. And so sometimes when there's a partner who comes off as criticizing or blaming, 
um, that kind of zaps the safety in the relationship. And so that while they're still looking for connection, they just cannot connect to that partner who is doing that. Mm-hmm. And I and I really like that you use the word dance because dance is is a beautiful metaphor for relationship and and it really is a dance between polarities. And the polarity is it creates attraction, it creates a movement, it creates tension, but a healthy tension when it's done with with awareness and trust in each other. And you know, when you first start learning to dance, initially you're kind of awkward and frigid and you like you don't really know the steps. But the whole idea of the dance is that you learn the steps enough and you learn to sense into the, each other's partner enough so that you can have the joy of spontaneity, of new expression, right? And and freedom and 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 that, you know, things that would other, you know, in uh, context without any skill would seem very risky. Once you've, you know, become more fluent in it, then it actually becomes more interesting, right? And, and, and more curious and you learn to ride that edge. But what happens is that we, our movements emotionally, mentally become um, stilted because of these early traumas, right? Because our initial attachment dances with our primary caregivers. And so in, if we don't experience learning how to do the dance steps, finding that safety, attunement, and we don't have examples of that, what happens is that we get very scared when we start this dance in intimate relationship, when we get older, right? And little things all of a sudden get us really triggered, right? And those triggers make us shut down or make us lash out, right? And so we don't get to feel into the possibility of what's there in the dance and the polarity, right? And we, you know, you need a therapeutic process of some kind to return back to those memories, those experiences, restore experience, find safety, understand what's really going on inside of you so that you can kind of approach it fresh. Mm. Well, it was interesting too to be in the program and have the experience, one where uh, my partner and I were basically separate in the sense that, you know, we would we would have our own tracks of our own self-inquiry, you know, supported by the three of you. Um, there were some group times where we would all speak together, but generally, right, it wasn't like uh, sitting on the counselor's chair, you know, together. It was actually, yeah, distinct which felt really important because obviously, you know, we each have our own roles that we're playing out. Um, and I just love this image, uh, this image as well of, uh, I don't know if you've seen the movie, I Heart Huckabees, but uh, yeah, there's a, there's a, I don't know, a playful way that I think it was Dustin Hoffman and um, the other character were these, I think they called them, they're sort of personal, personal psycho spiritual guides, you know, that would like follow the main character around and like give him insight about how he was experiencing life. And so I had that image when, when the three of you were, you know, in the program is that kind of energy that, you know, it's like you're, you have this little team on your side that's like kind of giving you this insight ongoingly um, through these different modalities. And uh, yeah, that it just felt really good to have that sense of, hey, I got my little, my little pod, you know, healing pod. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's a really important part of our program is because what I've discovered is that couples therapy typically doesn't address all of the individual trauma that we carry with us from childhood, right? So they're generally couples counselors are only looking at that one situation and oftentimes not even how many times that same situation has come up for a, a person. And um, that was that was my main kind of criticism of it when I went through it, when I was married and it, pretty much just found those sessions useless because they didn't make anything better. Oftentimes they left us in, in a worse state. And so 
um, that was really important for me to create a program that had like a individual track, right? Whether you're in a relationship or not, it's irrelevant because you still need to resolve a lot of the childhood trauma that you experienced. Hmm. You know, I've been with this question of, um, you know, I asked different guests this and, and, you know, somewhat recently I had a fellow Deus Forte, who's, who some of you know quite well, uh, talking about psychedelic um, applications for healing trauma. And I'm also curious for your take on mythically, if that's possible to, to wonder about, what is trauma from a mythic lens? Yeah, that's a, that's that's really a, a, a wonderful question. And um, on a mythic lens, it's a disconnection from our from our true self. Right? And so there's there's there, I feel there's two layers, two levels of it. I love this. Um, I love this story about how the soul comes into the world. And when the soul is coming into the world, it meets its divine twin and the divine twin tells it everything that it's coming here to experience. And it's when it hears it, it sounds so exciting, right? It's a wonderful story, mythic story of trials and tribulations and, and dramas and crises, but all of it is leading towards this uh, ever maturing unfoldment of this, of its self-knowledge, right? And And it's exciting that such a wonderful plot could be planned for it. And as it comes into the world, it um, it hears this beautiful sound, and it's it's drawn towards it. And as this hum grows louder, it's this mystical music, and, and it's coming from this tree. And it, it it embraces the tree, and it forgets everything that it was told. And then it comes into the world completely forgetting its whole purpose and being here, right? And so it comes in very disoriented, right? And in this disorientation, um, it it has to figure out again apparently why it's here, right? What its purpose is. And in order to do that, it has to form all these agreements that are, you know, imposed upon this soul as to like, this is who you are. And this is why, why, why you're here. And this is how you should act. And this is how you should behave. And this is how you should talk. And this is how you should dress and so on and so forth. And these all become second agreements, right? And, you know, they say that if you don't remember your first agreement, even though you're fulfilling all these second agreements, you're going to feel disconnected inside. You're going to feel lack of, uh, of, 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 of lack of purpose, right? And th the purpose of life is to remember your first agreement and to follow and to find that, right? And so when we think of the, 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 the role of trauma is that it's necessary. It's a necessary wound, right? The, of, of what happens when we come to the world, we need to forget, Right. And, and that's kind of, you know, trauma is that, you know, Leonard Cohen, ring the bells that still can ring, there is a crack in everything, and that is how the light gets in. Right? And so it's this, it's this wounding from life that opens up this possibility for healing. And, and as we heal it, we begin to remember what our first agreement is. Right? Mm. Because in order to heal it, we have to know who we are. We have to connect to our real self, our real feelings, our real needs. There's no other way around it, right? And so this is the beautiful gift of, you know, when we have these experiences. And and to just maybe frame for people, my understanding through my training was with Dr. Gabor Mate. And there's this line that he says uh, in defining what trauma is, which is that it's not what happens to you. It's what's, what happens inside of you as a result of what happens to you. And that shows that we all have this unique blueprint of events in life that make our 
personal trauma is unique to us, that everyone was given the gift of their own unique wounding, mm-hmm. right? That you can't understand it through outside events. It's these things that happen inside of you. And mm-hmm. that's, that's why we have to go in is the only way out, right? Mm-hmm. So it's this, that's sort of how I see it. Mm, I appreciate that. You know, what's coming to me is there's like, there, there feels like there needs to be a real distinction between um, like, you know, often there's this jumping too quick often when wounding has happened or when trauma has happened as this kind of new agey response is like, oh, well, you know, what's the gift in that? Or like almost too quickly trying to uh, tell people that, oh, this is great for you, you know, this kind of thing. Or, you know, how did you mastermind that or or manifest it, you know, this kind of stuff. So I'm not, you're not saying that. I'm not saying, but yeah, that's but when I, you get into the spiritual bypass oh, yeah. zone, right? That yeah, yeah, yeah. strong. I have, I can't stand it when someone says, oh, there's a silver lining and everything. No, there isn't, you know, and you know, sometimes you're not, you're not ready for that. Um, I had people that told me like, I brought forth my divorce because it was going to do something for me <laughs> and coming out of my divorce. I'm like, are you kidding me? I spent seven years with this person. It, like it was the biggest chunk of my life. And you're <laughs> telling me this is good for me. Oh, but you know, now seven years later, I can I'm finally at a point where I can say that, but it, I think it's really up to the individual to decide what it means and, and where they're at in that journey. And if it, if there's no several learning, that's totally fine. Well, this also makes me think, you know, just to make the the leap to like cultural ways in which trauma is held or, or, you know, healed. And, you know, for example, I think it would be safe to say that there's uh, some cultures that are very good at a lot more of somatic, um, you know, whether it's like music or, or festival, you know, drumming, like ways in which they, there's their sort of somatic, uh, I don't know, call it alchemizing, you know, of Mm-hmm. of physical tension or, or uh, different kinds of trauma. Um, I think of rites of passage as actually a kind of um, intentional traumatizing that is meant to actually reorient one's egoic self, you know, into a bigger story, which is something I've talked about on the podcast a lot in the past. But it seems like maybe like uh, Dr. Gabor was saying that, you know, in the absence of those who understand what's happening and can create you know, meaning from it, or, or at least show how meaning is wrought from these happenings, then one is left to do it somewhat heroically, you know, themselves beyond this, you know, heroic self-healing journey, which is so common in the modern way of speaking about it. It's like you're on your own, so you got to do it. Um, and in some ways, I see that also as, yeah, the real collapse of a cultural way that that not does it for you, but holds you within a cultural vessel Right, which has a lot more intelligence with how to to move these things. Well, we're in a disconnected culture, you know. Is it sort of that's the it becomes the norm, right? It's so it we we think that that's what's normal. And uh, there's this line that we meditate on a lot, which is that what's been broken in relationship has to be healed in relationship. Hmm. So we you know we need each other for that. We need each other for that healing. But you know, they say, and I, I heard this beautiful story that in the past when when someone was sick, they go to the shaman and the first questions the shaman would ask them was like, Let's, when was the last time you sang? When was the last time you danced? When was the last time you heard or told your story? Right. And if they've answered no to any of those questions, he says, okay, first go and do that. Then come and see me if you still have a problem. Right. And, and th- that, what is, that's the role of culture, right? That 
we have mechanisms of, of addressing the vicissitudes of life naturally through the way that we interact. But in the absence of those, well, you know, even a way in, in some ways, the notion that you need to sit in an office, separate in a cubicle with a therapist and talk to them because you can't talk to anyone else. You know, the way in which we have to approach it here is symptomatic of a disconnected culture, even though I participate in it. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. But yes, within my heart's yearning, it's like, hey, as a culture, as a collective, why don't we hold these spaces so that we as therapists have a lot less work to do? I mean, the ideal thing is that I don't have a job, right? Mm. <laughs> That's a healed culture. And maybe too to say that the 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 roles would be distributed, you know, I think in a way that, you know, for example, you know, elders or other trusted mentors and not to say that very specific healing practices are necessary, which I, I've come to believe that, that there are specific kinds of trauma that actually need, you know, very specialized training and, and support um, to, to, to really move it. And in fact, trying to heal it in a community which actually doesn't have a kind of resiliency or, or eldership can be really destructive to the community, for example. Yeah. So, yeah, so I do see we're in this, um, this moment where it's like, yeah, a lot of people want to have cultural models that are able to hold these things. And yet a lot of people have a lot of trauma that, that it prevents them from showing up uh, kind of ready for duty in that way in the cultural field. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I, I think the other thing is uh, if we start healing some of this trauma earlier on in our lives, perhaps we wouldn't rewound ourselves through our intimate relationships. Mm. Right, because mm-hmm. that just continues in spirals if we if we don't have those things in place culturally or you know in a community setting where we recognize that everyone goes through childhood trauma. You cannot get through childhood without it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. I mean, it, it brings up again. I have a three year old, almost almost three in a few weeks, and uh, and my partner and I I really with that question as well. Of course, that you know, what does it mean to do the work in a way so as not to pass on, right? And again, not to like overstep or, or maybe overleap like what you're saying as well. You know, I, I had this, um, it was maybe a kind of comedic take on the thing that, you know, a, a conscious parent, let's say in this regard, would be able to sit their kid down at, I don't know, 12 or 15, right? And say, hey, look, you know, these are the ways you're probably going to be traumatized by my behavior <laughs> or something like, like my patterns. You know, like I don't want it to be that way, but it seems to be so. You know, I've worked on these things, but this is how they show up. And just here where, you know, these are the ways in which you're probably going to want to, you know, seek support or, or be aware too. Like that kind of uh, transparency for me feels like pretty high level, you know, to be able to say, like, I know I'm not perfect and I'm not going to pretend I'm perfect because my pretending I'm perfect is what I'll pass on to you because you well, see exactly what's wrong with me. But, you know, if I'm not aware of that, I'm going to pass that on. So what's your take on that? Well, I think I would say two things. I think, like, parents really need to apologize as their children are growing up because it's natural for a child to think that their parents are God or perfect, right, that we all have that experience. Mm-hmm. It's it's when parents don't take responsibility for being imperfect or making mistakes is when it, that idea continues to be passed down. And then you really struggle with it as an adult, right? So... Um, I think apologizing when there's mistakes or when there's, you know, a rupture and then making the repair happen. But I think also exactly what you said, like educating them on the process of reparenting, like, hey, I I can only take you so far because I've only gone so far. But at some point, you're going to have to take over and you're going to have to reparent yourself wherever I left off. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do my best, but there's going to be some things that I just 
left undone. And, and, you know, I hope you take that and you take it forward and, and I'll be here if you need me, but then it'll mm -hmm. be your journey. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's great in some ways, but it's, it's kind of later on in the game that that conversation happens. Mm -hmm. I mean, really the most formative years are our first few years of life. Like you don't get to explain to them these things. No. <laughs> you, most of what is being taken in by the infinite, the first zero to th two, three years of life be lay the foundational tracks for their development. And so a lot of the onus really is on the parents and it's mostly happening in an interoceptive experience for the child, right? It's pre-verbal. So, you know, they use their parents to train their nervous system. They, they learn. So if the, if the parents are stressed and anxious and depressed and prone to conflict, that is what the infant starts to tune into, right? And those start to get put into its own nervous system. So, you know, the parents do have to take responsibility for doing that healing work early on, you know. Um, mm -hmm. I think that it's, I think that it's essential to do that. Well, this, you know, this, again, makes me think of uh, how the obvious lack, I think, of sort of pre-parenting uh, education there is, you know, not just in here's how to change a diaper, here's how to whatever, but here's like self-work around, around, yeah, your conflict or attachment styles or trauma, like having that, that as like a, like I know cultures that have some pretty sophisticated onboarding, you know, uh, processes for parents who actually want to become parents. Like it's not an automatic yes by the community that just because a, a parents feel like they should have, should have a kid that they should. Um, whereas it seems to be the case, you know, in, in the rest of modern culture where that's enough, right? We decided, yay. Um, and so uh, I just see the, the having now, you know, a few years into our child's life too, I just see like, whoa, that would have been really helpful um, to have like, for example, patterns to presence, like pre-parenting, yeah. right? And maybe there's a whole other opportunity there for, <laughs> for people to bring this to. Yeah, it's something we've definitely wanted to explore further. And I mean, it's incredibly helpful, but I wonder if it is one of those things where you don't realize that you would have needed it earlier on until you experience and you're like, oh, I could have done things so differently. <laughs> well, there is uh, there is definitely a need for that. I mean, a lot of the problems that we face is because of incorrect pre-parenting education. Mm -hmm. You know, Dr. Spock, don't pick up your children when they cry. You know, we have a generation of parents who read that and they just didn't pick up their children when they were crying and de uh, desperately needed attunement. And so then they develop this attachment trauma. I mean, this is, this is education that is given to parents, right? So, I mean, things are changing now and I, I have a lot of optimism in terms of like how we're waking up. And this kind of education is important. And um, mm. so much of the, the the work happens in, it's like there's two kinds of curriculum. There's an explicit curriculum and an implicit curriculum, right? Mm. So kids go to school and they get an explicit curriculum. Like this is, the, this is what you're going to learn and this is what we're going to teach you. And, you know, you tell them and, and, and this is their outside education process. But the home life of a child, their relationship with their parents and their caregivers, that's the implicit curriculum. That's what they're learning in the form of character. That's what they're learning in terms of like, this is what life is. This is what it means to be myself, to express myself. Parents have to take that responsibility. And once they've done the healing work and self-education work, 
the implicit curriculum they provide in the home of a child is one that leads them towards a healthy self-concept right? And wholeness. And that is invaluable. And then you don't have to worry so much about all the things that you need to say and teach your kids. You'll teach them by your, by your nervous system, by your example, by your presence with each other. And, and that's the best way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I appreciate that. I mean, maybe to finalize a conversation too. I mean, one thing that's still lingering for me is this sense of um, almost like, I don't know if I call it like a neo, neo-tantric understanding of the masculine um, or, or maybe some ways a a veiled traditionalism, possibly, at least in terms of a modern traditionalism, is this idea that the masculine is is caught between this dance of freedom and intimacy. Right? This sometimes gets trotted out that, you know, man needs to be fully free and then he can choose, you know, to come back to intimacy. Uh, and often that feels like, you know, when I think about it now, it actually is the dance. It feels like anxious and avoidant uh, had somehow like crystallized in this uh this you know philosophical um drape in some ways but i wonder again what is it is that true or is that a lens into you know again perceptions uh at large that somehow the masculine craves freedom more than say the feminine right as i know again I'm, i'm mixing sort of universes in some ways but for me this is why i'm trying to to you know use them to try to illuminate each other well, I think that it's important to recognize that within a man, there is a masculine and a feminine, right? There, mm-hmm. the both energies exist in everything we see around ourselves. And um, you know, Zamir and I were talking about this yesterday in terms of how we developed the program. Of uh, we've found a balance between structure and flexibility, and so it's again those polarities. And, and you know, the journaling part for me gives me the flexibility I need to work with the clients. And then for Zamir, we have the structures, you know, compassionate inquiry sessions, which start on time and end on time. So that's more structure oriented. Um, And I I think it's, it might be um, kind of erroneous to look at it as like the man seeks freedom more than intimacy or connection. I think that it's, um, it's a balance and at different points in your life, you might seek one or the other more. And then, you know, the other and the other partner also seeks the same two things. But again, perhaps in a different proportion at different points. Yeah. Well, maybe too. Thanks for that. I mean, I could add some addendum, which comes to me now is, uh, again, where maybe attachment lens can be helpful is that I, I recognize both both of myself and also men that I work with, often there is a, a hesitation to, I would call it like, ask for nurturing connection. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just use heterosexual examples here, nurturing connection from a woman mm-hmm. um, because, and this is a sort of the, the uh, deeper understanding is that it, it triggers a kind of feeling of vulnerability, but also weakness, mm. right? To, to ask for that. And so it's often not asked for, or, or it's sort of implied, or maybe it's, um, it's sort of covered over by, you know, detachment or anger. And so there's this um, sense that it's vulnerable to ask for that nurturing feminine because it, in some ways it feels like men, uh, at least in this culture, have to be, you know, out there and, and, and self-sufficient and, you know, all the rest. And so I see that now as well, like a kind of attachment wound. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Not, and, and playing itself out in relationship, right? Not being able to say like, not turning the partner, in this case, the woman into your mother which is often the case, right? What happens unconsciously, but just being able to say, Hey, for this moment, 
could you offer this nurturing energy? Because that would feel really good to me. I think it's important for men to learn that skill and to demonstrate that skill because that's authentic. I mean, but the important thing is just being authentic and not being uh, ashamed. I mean, those, if you're having shame, guilt, self-doubt, self-judgment, all these core uh, negative emotions, those are the things that inhibit you for being authentic, right? And so we want the freedom. I think the ultimate freedom is to be ourselves. Everybody has the same yearning, the freedom to be themselves, right? And maybe in the feminine, it's, you know, the, the freedom is more, I want a container of safety and trust so that I have the freedom to love fully and express fully. Right. And it's a different kind of freedom. Right. Mm. And whereas, um, for a man, they are looking for the freedom to express themselves in the world outwardly more. Right. And that's uh, a different kind of freedom. Mm. But this is now, I think that the, the genders are being, um, the gender question is being more and more dissolved and mixed. And I, I think that there's, there's some real benefits to that because I feel in some ways the pendulum needs to swing where we can dissolve some of those rigid identifiers so that we can true to what is actually alive and present in the balance within, within an individual. And, and I do think it's helpful for listeners to note that in the process of doing this work, we, we actually don't take attachment styles that seriously. Mm-hmm. Okay. In the sense that when we look at someone, we don't look at a label of like, Oh, you're this attachment. This is the formula. Let's apply that formula to you. Right. It's more about self-knowledge. We all need a gateway in which we can understand, you know, how, how our wounds might've influenced how our, our actions and perceptions are originating, but it's not helpful to be caught within a label. It's mm-hmm. just a guide, right? Yeah. And in spiritual circles, attachment can be kind of a dirty word, right? And, you know, I, I've heard this in workshops that I've taught and people are like, well, but, you know, we need to be attached, right? It's natural to be attached. And, and when the Buddha says attachment, what he really means is clinging, right? Not clinging. Because when we cling to situations, when we cling to relationships, we set ourselves up for suffering because we're, we're afraid of change. And that happens on both sides of the equation. So if you're, if you're clinging in an anxious way, um, that looks one way. But if you're, say, avoidant, what you're doing is the opposite of of clinging, which is aversion, which is really kind of the same thing, which is avoiding, right? Well, you're clinging to your freedom, maybe. (laughs) Exactly, right. So you're trying to stop something from happening, and that aversion actually has you clinging to your idea of, well, if I hold on to this, I'm safe. But in either way, what you're doing is you're resisting the dynamic flux and polarity of life and responding to it in the moment with courage, with vulnerability, with love, and with willingness. And it just looks different for each person, but it's the same thing that's happening underneath, Mm -hmm. right? It just tends to fall more. Men look more this way and women more look this way. But when you really get deep down into it, you don't see man or woman. You just see... Patterns of behavior. Yeah. (laughs) Mm. 
Well, thanks for that. I mean, it it really makes me reflect again on what was the final outcome of the the course that I did with you, which was really like a reflection, right, of of the pattern that was playing itself out and sort of a repatterning possibility. And I'll say that since then, I mean, there not to say that, you know, healed, you know, on the spot, but more like okay, just that consciousness, that like precise awareness. Uh, to have it reflected back in that way really did, as I look back you now months later, really did have an effect that it really brought a level of yeah self-awareness that now that pattern has not been able to get a foothold in the way that it had in the past, like unconsciously. And so I'm deeply grateful for that to the both of you for, for offering and to the third in your triad. And um, yeah, I just want to invite anyone listening who's curious to visit your program and the website patterns to presence.com and, um, and tune in and, and just even to really look at this conversation from these lenses, I think is so vital as we, as we heal through the relationship. Also, we become more able to be in service to the times. That's the other sort of wider picture that I see. Absolutely. I mm-hmm. love that you said that being in service to the time and for, you know, anyone who's, who's listening to, to know that you are, on a journey of self-knowledge and healing right and it's really exciting and the more that we start to understand the sources of our mental and emotional suffering the more we have compassion for others as well and it's Mm. a wonderful thing to start to do you know Mm. any final thoughts sabrina no i just like to echo that sentiment i think that as more of us heal, we can be of service to others. And I think that's the most uh, gratifying part of my life is that, you know, my pain has now become part of my purpose. So Mm, beautiful. Yeah. Thank you for having us.